Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. The benefits of pursuing holiness. Now let me tell you, there's a danger to approaching the Word of God with a what's-in-it-for-me attitude. We shouldn't pursue God because of what He can give us. He gives us because we pursue God. Amen. Whatever benefit there is in God is only received in the presence of God. But we have to move into the presence of God before we can expect to receive anything. Amen. And so, I know I hope that didn't confuse anybody. You understand where I'm coming from. I felt like I kind of chased my own tail there for a minute. We shouldn't approach. But the fact of the matter is, the Bible does say that there's blessing to obedience. That God does bless us when we are obedient. I, I, and it's literally from cover to cover in your scripture. But I've, I've isolated two verses for no other reason than just to show you two examples. Genesis twenty-two eighteen shows that God rewards the obedient. He says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so all the generations of the earth are blessed because Abraham was obedient. Amen? In Proverbs 16, 7, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. How many of you guys got somebody talking against you, speaking against you, acting out against you? You know what the Word of God says? If you'll live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, he'll even make your enemies at peace with you. So instead of speaking against your enemy, how about you speak to God and ask him, what is it that's in me that hasn't caused my enemies to be at peace with me? Oh, what? That was a word the first service didn't get, so y'all blessed for that. <laughs> but it's true, right? We should always start by looking inward before we start looking outward. And so there is a truth that blessing comes with obedience. We serve, as you guys have heard me say on multiple occasions, an if-then God. And people don't like that because they, they, we want to believe that God, and He is, that He loves us unconditionally. But there are still, if you do this, then I promise to do this. I, I dare you to look through your scripture and find any promise in the Word of God or blessing in the Word of God that doesn't have that equation in it. The Bible says, if, you declare with your mouth, Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. You have to do this, then you will be saved. Right? John 3.16, the most popular of all verses, declares an if-then sentence. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him, that is the if, if we believe in him, We should not perish but have everlasting life. This is the then. If we believe in Him, then we have everlasting life. And so there are blessings in the Word of God, but we don't pursue for the sake of the blessing. We pursue for the sake of a relationship. And like any relationship that you're even in, in in this world, there's a blessing to being in that relationship, right? Like I'm blessed by my wife, right? Because we're in relationship. But I've told her I'm going to try to stop minimize, start minimizing the, how I embarrass her in front of folks. And so I'm not going to tell the 10 or 15 incredible ways that she blesses me. Just that I just get to look at her every day and how beautiful she is. And uh, just, Am I doing it again? It is reverent. Rev honoring you is reverent to God because God gave you to me. Amen. Amen. 
She asked me the other day, she said, why are you staring at me? I said, because I have to memorize you should there ever be a time I don't get to look at you. And I want to talk to you today about three blessings in pursuing holiness, pursuing Christ-likeness. Now I'm going to do that. There's, there's a, literally thousands of reasons and blessings in the pursuit of Christ-likeness. But I'm going to give you three because three specific ones that I think are significant because they are kingdom-minded reasons. They're not self-centric reasons. They're Christ-centric. And so I want to talk to you about those. First, first and foremost, number one, pursuing holiness makes us useful. Pursuing holiness makes us useful. And I, I can prove that to you in Scripture and will in 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, it says this. Now in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, some for honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, because of that, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. How many of you guys want to be useful to the master? I want to be pliable in the hands of God. Amen? And all of us should desire to be useful. There was a, a hymn I found while doing research from a lady that lived in the early 1900s. Says she wrote a thousand hymns. And this particular piece of the hymn, I think, sums up the spirit of what Paul is saying here very well, that we are to be useful to God. It says, to be used by God, to sing, to speak, to pray, to be used of God, to show someone the way. I long so much to feel the touch of His consuming fire. To be used of God is my only desire. Man, is that beautiful? This should be our only desire, our true desire. Not, not only to be used of God, but to be used by God. So we should declare a desire to be useful. Every believer should want to be useful. Why aren't we? Why, why do we submit to uselessness? I'll tell you the number one reason why I believe people submit to uselessness. Christians submit to uselessness. Because somebody has lied to you and told you that your resume makes you usable. God doesn't care about your resume. God cares about the condition of your heart and your willingness to submit. He doesn't care how rich you are, how influential you are, who you know or who you don't know. You know what he cares about? That you're willing to be pliable in the hands of the potter. Stop letting people tell you what you mean to God and how you can be used of God. I've had a hundred people, or, and that's, a, that's a, a low ball, it's much higher than that, tell me that I'm not qualified to preach the Word of God. And I'm not. But praise God, in my submission to Him, He has made me useful to preach the Word of God. Nobody is qualified to preach the Word of God. Nobody is qualified to declare the name of Jesus. No one is qualified to even have the Holy Spirit indwell us and to be saved. None of us deserve that. None of us had that coming. But God, but God, that's those two greatest words in the Scripture, right? But God demonstrated His love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Qualifying us to be useful. Right? In fact, we had a lesson a couple months ago on 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me find it real quick and read it to you. About how your lack of resume or qualification actually makes you more useful 
1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 20, I'll find it in a second. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brethren. You know what a calling is? Your purpose. Consider how God intends to make you useful. That there was not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. But God, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, and things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. And we should all give a big hearty amen to that. Because I'm not noble, I'm not strong, and I'm not wise. But by the Spirit of God, I am capable of being useful. We should desire to be used by God. And usefulness is, in fact, a blessing. But there are two qualifications to being useful, according to this text. In the text, it says, let me turn back to it. 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21, verses 21. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So it says we have to be willing to cleanse ourselves from these things. What are these things? Well, in order to know what these things are, we have to look at the scripture in context. And if you'll look at the verses before that, he's talking about the church. I'm about to give you guys a real hard word. I need you to pay attention to all of it because if you just get a sound bite of it, you're going to misunderstand what I'm saying. He's saying, listen, there's people in the house of God that you're allowing to live in sin without confronting that's causing the house to be unuseful. We can't tolerate sin in the house of God. Now, I'm not saying there aren't sinful people in the house of God. All of us sin, fall short of the glory of God, even after salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But when you're habitually living in sin, coming up in here, acting holy, we need to, we need to respond to that as a body. Because you're defaming the house of God when you do that. And so the Word of God tells us that we must cleanse the house from time to time from those who habitually sin and call themselves Christian because you're defaming that which God wants to use you for. Is that a hard word? It is a hard word, but it's a necessary word. It's a word we don't declare for pulpits enough. Now, let me, let me tell you, what I'm talking about is church discipline. It says we have to cleanse the house. I will also tell you to keep in mind, for what I'm about to say, Galatians 6.1. Galatians 6.1 says restore a brother gently so that you yourself don't fall into sin. I'm not telling just crawl down their gullet and say, you're going to hell and you're, getting, you're out of here or anything like that. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about restoring them gently. I'm talking about the process that Paul says for discipline. says go to a brother first and say, hey, let me, let me restore you gently, recognizing that if I'm not gentle with you, I too am in sin. But if that person rejects that, then we're supposed to bring a brother. And again, restore gently. And if a brother still rejects after you and another person go to him, you're supposed to tell them to leave the church. 
Because it's when they leave the church, they lose their support system. And when you don't have any support system, you're ultimately going to find rock bottom. And when you find rock bottom, you're going to find that Christ is the rock at the bottom. And you're going to come back home. It's a necessary function of the church to bring people to discipline. It's tough. But we do it because we love. Amen? Amen? I can't tell you how many people in the church, my wife and I often talk about this. I don't... Because we want to maintain the sanctity of the house of God. We've had several dinners where my wife and I take somebody out to lunch and, or dinner or whatever, and it will confront a sin. One of the sins that, one of the things that we talk about most often, I think, is people that are living together unmarried. And they're all, well, we're not sleeping together. <laughs> right? Sure you're not. It's all good. So now let's talk about your lying problem. Right? But you go, so you confront them and you ask them, so you just committed your life to the Lord, what are you going to do about that? And can I tell you, we've had over probably 10 or a dozen marriages because people were brought to a revelation of the truth that you can't declare that you belong if you don't belong. And I don't condemn them. We don't condemn them when we tell them. We tell them gently. This is the process. This is what God expects of you. If you get mad because I tell you something from the truth of the word of God, you get mad at God, you ain't mad at me. I'm just a speaker. I'm in a, I'm in a Walmart bag, right? I'm carrying the groceries. That's all I do. How many of you guys walk in your house with a bag full of groceries, throw the groceries in the trash, and put the bag in the refrigerator? That's stupid. I'm just delivering the goods, baby. All right? Sadly, though, some people do hold on to the, the bag over the groceries because they think the, the pastor's more important than the word. And let me tell you, that's a, that's a non-truth straight out of the pit of hell, too. But what am I saying to you? If we're going to be useful, we have to have a house that has the integrity worthy of being used. Not only congregationally, but personally. Why? Because sin is contagious. Proverbs 13, 20 says this, He who walks with wise men will be wise, but the companion of fools will suffer. It's the truth. That bad morals corrupt good character. You're all, well, Pastor Jim, how am I supposed to talk to the people in the world if, if that's the case? I got something for you. Here's a text I've never heard preached out of the word of God. And I'm not necessarily going to preach it other more than just declare it to you today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul writes this. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. He says, I told you earlier, don't associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of the world. Well, if he's not talking about the people of the world, who's he talking about? He's talking about the people in the church. Or with the covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out to, of the world. We're not called to go out of the world. We're called to be in the world. We're, we're called to be in the world, not of the world, right? We have to be here. We have to declare the truth. We have to do as Jesus did and sit with sinners from time to time. He says, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with so-called brothers. If he is a moral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. That's a tough word. 
not even to eat with them. According to the word of God, this is what we should do. If you've refused discipline, we should, and I'm being metaphorical, of course, probably hyperbolic, but we should take your picture, attach it to the bulletin, and pass it out with the bulletin that said, this person has refused to come into submission to the house of God and to the word of God. Don't eat with them. Because that's what Paul's saying right here. Do you imagine what would happen in the church if that happened? The church would be cut in half about that fast. But let me tell you, the church cut in half would be more powerful than the whole church right now. It's a tough word, I know, but it's true. Not only do we have to cleanse our life of the people that shouldn't be in our life, but it says that we must have a sanctified soul. We must pursue a sanctified soul. This is literally what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. We have to live holy and pure and godly to be a vessel of honor because that's how we become a vessel of honor. Amen? So I'm not going to spend a lot of time there other than just to say when we do that, when we do both of these things, we become useful. Prepared for every good work. God has given us His Spirit. He has given us talents. He has given us gifts. And it and it's our responsibility to steward them in such a way that we not only be the example to the community, but inside of this church, be a true discipleship community where people come to not only know God, but to grow in God, to become free in Christ Jesus, to be empowered by the Holy Spirit so that they too might understand their gifts, that they too might become useful in the hands of God. And I don't know about you, but at the end of the day, I want to be useful. Because I don't belong to me. I belong to God. God bought me. And because he bought me, I'm a slave to righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? I think if we could just get this truth down, the rest of it would solve itself. If you realize that you don't even belong to you, you'd stop acting like you belong to you. <laughs> right? I know that's simple. But it's true. If God owns you, you should be doing what God tells you to do. But he goes on to say, For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Mm, that's good. We're called to be useful. And you know the greatest way we are to be useful is to be able to tell others about Him. Which is the second blessing to pursuing Christ-likeness or pursuing holiness. Pursuing holiness causes others to glorify God. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12 read like this. Behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Mm. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they, excuse me, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. This is a convicting word to me personally. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We are to abstain from fleshly lusts. 
You know, I hear people say all the time, man, the world's just persecuting Christians. Right? You guys ever been persecuted against? Somebody say something. Well, first off, Americans don't know what persecution is. When you have your head sawed off on television because of Jesus, you'll know what persecution is. But there are still struggles. People still talk bad about us, right? And they talk bad about us. That means they're talking bad about God because we're talking about Jesus. And so what Paul is saying here is he says, listen, if you want people around you to stop persecuting you, you need to abstain from sinful behavior. you got to start walking the walk that you talk about walking. Too many of us want to tell everybody how righteous we are. We dress right, we give right, we love right, we hug right, we kiss right, we do whatever it is we do right in the house of God, and then we go out here and we live like hell like we've never even been in a church and wonder why the world talks bad about us. Because we're acting hypocritical. We're not supposed to act hypocritical. Not to say we don't all fall. I go back to Romans 3.23. I want to be as gracious as I can, or as gracious as the Word of God is, that all of us have fallen into the short of the glory of God. But don't you know people are watching you? When you say, I'm a Christian, they put a target on your back, and they start watching you. And the first time you don't act like a Christian, they tell you. Let me tell you an illustration from my own personal life. Several of you have heard this before. Many of you haven't. I used to be, before I came here, I was an instructor at the police academy. And uh, I was there one day, so there's a rule at the police academy that if you're a student, you're not supposed to be within six feet of an instructor. It's a personal safety thing. You try to build that habit of space while they're at the academy so that they don't get too close to suspects and stuff later on. But anyway, there's a rule. They're not supposed to be six feet within a six-feet area of, a, of an instructor. And so I'm at breakfast that morning. It was the morning after I got saved. I gave my life to the Lord. And I'm bragging to one of my friends, I'm at the, one of the other instructors, I'm telling him, man, I'm excited. I gave my life to the Lord. And, man, it's going to be so awesome and all this. And, and I'm, I'm declaring pretty loudly because I'm a pretty loud person anyway. And I go to walk out of the cafeteria into my office, which is quite a ways down the hallway. And a student who is late comes around the corner and bumps into me. Not maintaining that six-foot rule. But doesn't just bump into me. Like almost knocks me over. And so I grab him. He's a little off kilter too. So I grab him and I swept him and I put him on his back and I just stood over him and I just like finger pointed in his face like oh, the whole time and just dog cussed this kid. Just gave him down the road about how horrible a person he was and just cussed him with every cuss word I knew. Finally let him get up, let him go to class. Went back to my office. Felt good about being an instructor. Still feeling good about being a Christian. Can I tell you, just because you gave your life to the Lord today doesn't mean you don't, still don't need to persecute your flesh tomorrow. And so, I feel good about myself until the next break. The students got out of their class and they have a 15-minute break and I hear this on my door, on my office. I was like, yeah, what? The student said, Mr. Cuba, can I come in and talk to you? I said, yes, sir, come on in. He come in, he goes, um, so... Mr. Key's nervous because he doesn't want to talk to an instructor or give an instructor a word of correction. But he's a Christian brother, and he looked at me and said, I heard you saying in the cafeteria that you gave your life to the Lord Sunday. I said, yeah, that's right. He goes, I celebrate that with you. I was like, well, thanks. He goes, but I also watched what you did to officer so-and-so. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to act like a Christian. And let me tell you, man, that cut my heart out. One, because I knew how hard it was was for him to come tell me that. And two, because I had already dishonored God with my actions. 
we have to abstain from earthly, from fleshly desire. Amen? Because people are watching us. People are watching us. This is a struggle we see throughout Scripture. Paul, one of the greatest examples of it, and I'm not going to turn there, is Romans chapter 7, where Paul is talking about how he does the things he wants to do or doesn't do the things he knows he should do. And like 15 verses, he's just back and forth with himself. My flesh wants to do this. My spirit wants to do this. And even though I know this is right, this is what I end up doing. We all war with the flesh. I'm not saying that we don't, but we are to overcome the flesh in the spirit because the God gave us his spirit to overcome the flesh. God didn't even tell you you had to do it. He told you you had to do it and gave you the way to do it. And so he gave us the spirit and in the spirit we have to create discipline in our life so that we don't show God as something other than who he is. When I say I'm a Christian and I don't act like a Christian, people say, is that what your God looks like? Mm -hmm. But if I act like I'm supposed to act, if I abstain from fleshly lusts, then we have a promise that they will see us. And the same thing will happen, but opposite. They will see us and want what we have. And in their own day of visitation, which means when the Holy Spirit finally provokes them to salvation, they will look upon us and see what we've done and come to a place where they glorify God just as we should be glorifying God. This is a huge blessing right to be able to bring other people into relationship with jesus i i read a illustration in preparation for this sermon about a missionary couple in japan or japanese occupied territory uh, during world war ii and they were put into a prison camp because they were christian missionaries and there was a let's see if i got the guy's name written down general somewhere general kanishi general kanishi was the commander of this camp and the missionaries once they were released from there the americans came and released them from there the missionaries were talking about how horrible a person this general kanishi was that he he would beat on them and he would like deprive them of sleep and never give them enough to eat and then work them till all hours of the night and then do it all again the next day over and over and over and over again depriving them and beating on them every day for as long as they were there and it was horrible they had almost died before they were removed from the prison camp but they were removed from the prison camp and several years later we're told that general kanishi gave his life to the lord and so they inquired how did why did he give his life to the lord what what happened how did it happen because that's not the person they knew right and they were told that because of their missionary work because of the joy that they kept even in the face of persecution because the christian example they were even when someone else was trying to kill them, he didn't understand it and began to pursue it. And in the pursuit of it, came to acknowledge that Christ is the true way. When we act as we're supposed to act, others see our good works, and in our good works glorify God on their day of visitation. This is the second blessing. The third blessing. Pursuing holiness brings us and others into intimate communion. I want to read a verse or a whole psalm to you. It's only five verses, though. I want to read Psalm 119 to you. Some of y'all know why that's funny, because it's, it's like 12 pages or something. Psalm 15 is five verses. 
says the psalmist asked this question at the beginning of this at the beginning of the psalm he says oh lord who may abide in your tent who may dwell on your holy hill these are great questions these are incredibly great questions because he's saying essentially how how do i live with you how am i in relationship with you how do i maintain intimacy with you we should ask god these same questions every day god how do i live on your holy hill how do i get to live intimately in your house what do i need to do and then the psalmist gives six identifying characteristics of someone who gets to abide in god he said he who walks with integrity and works righteousness you know what works righteousness is pursues holiness for he who pursues holiness and then he gives four things as to what pursuing holiness looks like he said he who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart and does not slander with his tongues, which means he isn't a liar and he isn't a gossip here. He isn't a dissenter. He isn't a person that creates disunity. That's, that's what that means. He does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor nor takes up a reproach against his friend at whose eyes a reprobate is despised, someone who separates themselves from the sinner, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change, which means he does what he says he's going to do and doesn't change his mind, even if it hurts him to do it. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. So he doesn't take financial advantage of others. And then there's this promise. If you'll do these things, he who does these things will never be shaken. Man, isn't that awesome? In a world where everything is shaky, we have the promise that if we will pursue righteousness and all that that declares, that the holy God will make sure that we are forever in his presence and forever unshaken. This is intimate communion. And when we're used properly, when we are able to declare to others who he is, we not only get to live in that intimacy, but we get to live with others in that intimacy. It's the it's the beauty of the, the horizontal relationship between believers and the vertical relationship we all have with God, which is represented in communion. And so today I want to I end the service today in this pursuing holiness and remembering this one truth. If there's only one truth, I want you to remember through the whole series, this is it. It isn't what you do that makes you holy. It's who you belong to that makes you holy. And in communion, we remember who we belong to because of what he did for us. Amen? And so I'm going to ask the ushers to come ahead and pass out communion. And I'm going I'm to read something to you. If we're going to remember, we should remember what we should remember rightly. And I use this same text every time we do communion because it, it's just so profoundly true. Isaiah 53, you want to know what Jesus did for you? This is what Jesus did for you. I'm going to start in verse 1. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, Jesus, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He, was no, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So it was his anointing that attracts us to him. I think that's awesome. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, 
and we did not esteem him. He lived his whole life like a tender shoot, despised and rejected. Verse 4, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. For he was pierced for our transgressions. I'll tell you what that means. It means he was literally pierced for, the, for our violations of the law. He became our substitute because we violated the holy sacred law. He was crushed for our iniquities, our wickedness. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, which means they inflicted suffering upon him so that we could be better. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, which means we don't deserve what he did for us. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. And then later in the text it said it pleased him to do it. It pleased God to crush, to pierce, to do all of the things that happened to Jesus. It pleased the Father to do it. You know why? Because him being the substitutionary atonement for you is the only way he could spend eternity with you. And so he suffered so we don't have to. This is what we're remembering. We're remembering the new covenant that his body was torn. Represented by the blood that his blood, or by the bread that his blood was shed to cover our sins, represented by the juice. Amen. With that in mind, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'm going to challenge you to listen. Verse 27 Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. Before we take communion, the word of God is very specific to say, don't take it wrongly. You have to check yourself. You have to examine the condition of your heart. There should be, there should never. You want to talk about reverence or irreverence. There is never a more irreverent time in all of your life as a Christian than to take communion wrongly without checking yourself, without a time for repentance. Because you're saying, you're flippantly abusing the communion of God when you don't examine yourself. And woe be it to us to flippantly abuse the blood of Jesus. And so I'm going to ask you, is there anything in you that shouldn't be in you that you need to ask God forgiveness for? Or if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know God on a personal, intimate level through Jesus Christ, now's your time to make that right. Before you take this communion, now's the time to make that right. Whether you know Him, but you got something you need to get right, or you don't know him and you need to get all right. Jesus died so that you could. And so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray my own prayer. I'm not going to pray for you guys. I want you to pray for you. I don't do repeat after me prayers. But if you need a guide and you want to use something like I say, 
That's fine, but it needs to be a personal conversation between you and the Lord. And so, before we take communion, let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. and We thank you, God, that you love us. I thank you that you love me. That you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for me while I was still a sinner, when I was completely unworthy and am still unworthy, but I'm gracious and grateful that you gave it to me anyway. God, if there's anything in me that shouldn't exist in me, God, I ask that you, one, reveal it to me, and two, cut it out of me. No matter how painful it is, no matter how low it brings me, I ask, Heavenly Father, that you do it, and I ask in sincerity. And God, when that thing is revealed, if there is a thing that is revealed, I ask that you give me the power, the ability, by your Holy Spirit, to move past it, to repent of it, to turn away from it, and turn towards your Son, Jesus. If there's anybody in this room that doesn't know who you are, God, I pray this prayer. Father God, forgive me of my sin. Forgive me for not following you. God, I repent from my sin and I turn away from that sin. But God, not just turn away from the sin because that's, that's works-based salvation, but turn towards Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that I'm given the Holy Spirit. It's in the Holy Spirit that I'm able to walk out this, this thing called salvation and I praise you for that. I ask God that you dig that out of me, that you show me and strengthen me day by day to walk according to your word. I praise you because I know that you will. I praise you because I know, because I've asked, you already have. We thank you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, going back to it. Paul says this. He says, Now on the day, therefore I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that on that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said before I tell you what he said there's something I should have said before it says those that take wrongly communion it's the reason why some of us are sick did you know if you take it wrongly there's a curse which means simply if you take it rightly there's a blessing and so I want you if you're sick in your body if there's something going on in you Physically, I believe there's no better time to receive a blessing of healing than in communion. And so claim that in receiving communion, that his skin was literally stripped from his bone so that you could be healed. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. God calls us to pursue righteousness, Christ-likeness. But really what he wants us to do is do whatever is necessary according to the Word of God to be intimate in communion with Him. So I challenge you, ask yourself every day, where am I versus where I should be?